There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello. Hello, Frank. Yes. Yes. I've been in touch with Santo. Uh, oh, yes. I heard that uh, you, you gave him a call. Right. Okay. Yeah, and, um, well, I mean, it, it concerns uh, the program that you've made. Yeah, I, I gather you have a lot more important information. In 1993, on the 26th of August, a reporter sat in a Dublin hotel and phoned his source, a disgruntled, high-ranking IRA figure, apparently with dirt to share. You understand the situation? It's very dangerous. I know. Yes. And I don't want to talk on the phone. OK. The reporter recorded the call, but such was the way at the time. British security officials banned it from being broadcast. Little did the reporter know, this man wasn't just a chatty IRA leader. He was also a British spy, arguably the most important of the Troubles, but also one of the most dangerous. As a British agent, Scapatici was given a number, 6126, and a codename, Steakknife. On Friday, a long-awaited investigation will report on Steakknife, what he did and what his British handlers knew. I have now got agreement with the DPP and with the head of the Canova team that we can move to publication on the 8th of March this year. Was he allowed to murder to cover the fact he was an informant? There is a story to be told. A lot of families don't actually want prosecutions. They just want to know what happened. And that's been a massive part of the whole, what we call the legacy situation in Northern Ireland. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Luke Jones. Today, Operation Canova, unmasking the dirty wall. I am Sean O'Neill, and I'm a senior writer at The Times. And you've reported on these kind of issues for a while, haven't you? Forever, it feels like. (laughs) So I grew up in Northern Ireland and started my journalism career there and have, after moving to Fleet Street, maintained an interest and have been back and forth countless times to report on the Troubles, the end of the Troubles, the fallout from the Troubles... And it's been poured over by journalists like you and so many more as well. How much is still unknown, would you say? Oh, masses is unknown. I mean, the focus of this Operation Canova has been what journalists like me call the dirty war, the kind of unseen battle of spies and covert operations and psychological operations and, you know, that whole hidden war that went on Mm. behind the scenes, behind the headlines of bombs and and shootings. Specifically then, explain for us, what has Operation Canova been looking at for the past eight years or so and what is it 
reporting on on Friday? What yeah. would it reveal? Operation Kinova is focused on the activities of a British Army agent inside the IRA who is codenamed Steakknife. And at the heart of this investigation, which, as you, you said, Luke, has been running since 2016 and has cost about £40 million, is the commission of criminal offences by that agent, including murders, attempted murders, abduction and torture, but also whether there were offences committed by the people who knew of and ran that agent, his handlers. So that that's primarily mm. British Army intelligence, but also people within the security services and, and possibly other government personnel as well. Let's get into all of that then, Sean. Steak knife, we now know, was a man called Freddy Scapatici. Rewind all the way back for us. Mm. Who was he? Where was he born? Freddy Scapatici was born in... Belfast, in the markets area of Belfast in 1946. He came from an Italian immigrant family, you know, a, a working class childhood in, in Belfast. When the troubles start in 1969, Catholic communities feel very much under siege from the police, from sectarian violence. It's an extraordinary time in Belfast. In Belfast, the British Army is once again back in the old routine. Men in the middle, keeping peace between two warring factions. But this time, it's not Aden, Cyprus, or some far-off colony. It is, incredibly, in Britain's own backyard, Northern Ireland. Neighbourhoods are on fire, huge movements of populations, Catholics moving out of Protestant areas, Protestants moving out of Catholic areas. It's a time of great flux and change and fear and violence. It seems like a bad dream, but for five weeks, Belfast has been a city full of barricades, barbed wire and soldiers. And Scapatici first emerges as a young man, as a kind of community vigilante, but then very quickly emerges into the IRA and the emerging provisional IRA, which is the sort of militant breakaway of the IRA movement at the time. And he did prison time as a result. Well, he's he's one of a lot of people who are rounded up in 1971 without charge, without trial. Britain arrested hundreds of suspected Republicans and put them away in a prison camp that became known as Long Kesh. So he was one of those people who was interned without trial for several years and is eventually released in 1975 back onto the streets. And when he is back on the streets then, post-75, he doesn't get straight back in with the IRA. No, I think talking to people who knew him didn't enjoy prison. So he didn't re-engage immediately with the IRA. He went back to work on building sites, being a bricklayer. And he discovered a kind of tax scam where you're kind of employing non-existent workers on the building site. So he was making, by all accounts, quite a lot of money through this tax scam on Belfast building sites. And that seems to have been much more attractive to him than um, getting back involved with paramilitaries and, and terrorism. But still, that leads him to, to the authorities. Well, this is, this is where his story starts to get quite interesting. The tax scam attracts the attention of the fraud squad, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, the police fraud squad. They take an interest in him. I understand he's interviewed, possibly arrested. And rather than face the prospect of going back to prison, 
it seems that Scapatici decided to become a kind of casual police informant. I've spent some time recently trying to trace people who were involved in, shall we say, recruiting or handling Scapatici. And I'm told that he's turned quite easily. He seems to be willing to discuss mm. things with the military. Plus, there's money involved. You know, they, they get paid for these meetings, paid for bits of information. And more information, because if he's no longer with the IRA at this point, what use would he have been to the British authorities at that point? Well, he's of limited use until he rejoins the IRA. But they mm. like the look of him because... He's quite a feared character. He's known for his aggression, his violence. He's known as a guy who's been in the long cash cages. So he has respect within Republican circles and within the community. He also knows quite senior people. He can re-engage quite quickly. And good grief, that he does, and then some. Mm -hmm. Explain the quite incredible and, and steep ascent he takes within the ranks of the IRA. Well, because of his history, he's easily reintegrated and what I was told is that as soon as he's kind of back in the fold if you like military supply him with a car and what year was this this is around 1978-79 so he, he's given a car the car is bristling with listening devices and very very quickly apparently everybody and anybody who matters is in his car. He's driving people around, giving them lifts, chatting away to senior people in the IRA. I mean, I was told that very shortly after the bombing in Sligo, the, the killing of Lord Mountbatten in 1979, mm. that a senior figure in IRA Southern Command was in Scapatici's car and was recorded talking about that killing. And as the 70s turns into the 80s, we get into a very tumultuous period, 1981, with the IRA hunger strikes in the Mays prison, where people are going on strike, sort of refusing food. Bobby Sands, IRA man serving a 14-year sentence for arms offences, begins the 61st day of his hunger strike. Almost nine weeks in which the only thing that has passed his lips is water. And now he can't stomach even that. So you have this huge movement which brings thousands of people out onto the streets, demonstrations, riots, very, very tense time. And a kind of culmination of that, as well as 10 men dying on these hunger strikes, you have a massive shift in the attitude of the Republican movement with the by-election in 1981 at which Bobby Sands, one of the hunger strikers, the first hunger striker to die, wins a seat in Parliament. The election posters are fading in the constituency, but the election has left a community polarised as never before, and this area knows what division means. Now, obviously, he never takes that seat up, but this is a kind of hmm. big light bulb movement in the Republican movement, a realisation that there is another strategy as well as bombs and bullets and violence. There is a political strategy to be developed. This is the, we need the ballot box as well as the armor light. The ballot box and the armor light, yeah. So what's Scrappatici doing at this point then, if we're in sort of early 80s and he's proved himself to be incredibly useful mm. to his British handlers? He is somebody who's trusted by the IRA leadership. That trust includes 
given him a senior role in something they call the Internal Security Unit. Now, ISU is a brutal organisation. It picks up people it suspects to be informants, abducts them, takes them for kangaroo courts. They are tortured and usually end up murdered, a bullet in the back of the head. And that gives the ISU its nickname, which is the Notting Squad. And what an incredible, well, incredibly ironic position Mm. for Scapatici to be in. He is an informant, and yet he is in charge of the IRA squad tasked with weeding out informants. Yeah. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And it means that he has power of life and death over people who are in the same position as him, people who are informing passing information and intelligence to the security services, he has the power to end their lives. There are a couple of cases that have emerged, one of which I find quite pertinent because it involves a young man from my own hometown, a place called Dungannon in County Tyrone, a guy called Seamus Morgan. Probably a low-level member of the IRA, Now, it seems that Morgan had been questioned by the police about potential IRA activities. After his release from police custody, he appears to have been picked up by the IRA, taken into the Irish Republic and interrogated by Scapatici and other members of the Notting Squad. Within 24 hours, his body was found near Fork Hill and he'd been killed with a bullet to the back of the head. Now, what has emerged in the study of the documents by the PPS? The Public Prosecution Service. That's the Public Prosecution Service, yeah. They refer to Scapatici as the source. It seems Morgan, who's referred to in this in this file as Victim I, was interrogated before being moved to another location in the Republic of Ireland for a court-martial. I'll just quote you what the PPS file says. It says, in this case, there's a typed record of a discussion in which the source advised their handlers in advance that masks and a gun were to be brought to the safe house where they would be with others to conduct the interrogation of victim I. And further, that if the victim tried to escape, he would be shot in the presence of the source. The handler tells Scapatici, quote, they should try and avoid such a situation but when the source, i.e. Scapatiti, repeated their concern that the matter was outside their control, the handler remarked, just don't tell us. That's the clearest evidence I've seen in a document where somebody makes a decision to sacrifice a life or Mm. to allow a life to be taken. And uh, Canova, the investigation, has uncovered that document. And the way that that maybe should or could have gone was Scapatici tells his handlers that this court martial is afoot and, you know, this is what my orders are. Mm-hmm. And they, the British, then tell the guard on the other side of the border to, to intervene and could have stopped that. But that maybe could have outed Scapatici as an informant. At all times, that seems to be the priority. Is The priority is the protection of Steakknife's position within the IRA to make sure that he isn't rumbled, doesn't come under suspicion. And yet is it clear to us, or anyone, 
how valuable the intelligence was coming from Scapatici because if he was in charge of the nutting squad, he wasn't necessarily the kind of person who would know about upcoming bombing campaigns or anything like that. Is, is that right? I think he had two kind of threads of information. One is, as a senior figure in the nutting squad, he was able to know virtually the identity of every recruit in the IRA because they all apparently had to be vetted by the nutting squad. The other level of information is at the strategic level, and my sources who, who shall we say, worked with or knew Scapatici back in the day, they say this is where he was really important. He was able to tell the British government what the IRA was thinking on a strategic level, the movement into politics. And other agents have stated that that shift from violence to politics was something that Britain in an intelligence form wanted to encourage. Hmm. That was a long game strategy by British intelligence. This becomes the tension that, that has emerged in, in the Operation Kinova investigation. There's two interpretations of public duty going on here. There is Kinova, the police operation, feeling that as police officers, your duty is to prevent harm, to prevent crime, to save life. And mm. against that, you have another arm of the state, the intelligence services, believing that there is a greater good in protecting national security, that somehow in protecting this source of intelligence, ultimately you will save more lives. Coming up, State Knife's cover begins to unravel, dramatically so. We'll find out how in a moment. This weekend, Time subscribers can catch the latest episode of Inside the Newsroom. It's our new behind-the-scenes series on Apple Podcasts, just for subscribers on the Stories of Our Times feed. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash bonus podcasts to find out more. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Sean, you've been taking us through the questions surrounding Steak Knife, who we know is was Freddie Scapatici, quite a, a high-ranking member of the IRA in the 70s and 80s, who was actually a British informant. And there was this incredible tension that he, at least on one occasion, it seems, alerted his handlers in the in British Army intelligence that you know a murder was going to take place, and they sort of said we don't want to know about it and the argument is that they could have stopped it the reason you said was because their priority was that he didn't come under suspicion of course eventually he did the IRA did get suspicious about him how did that happen and when did that happen that happens in 1990 the IRA suspect a man called Sandy Lynch 
of providing information to Britain about IRA operations. Lynch is abducted, taken to a house in Belfast and interrogated by Scapatici. This house, it later transpires, is where another man had been abducted and interrogated and murdered a year before. Scapatici conducts the interrogation and then leaves the house. And as he leaves, a number of other figures arrive, including a senior Sinn Féin official, who apparently has the role of trying to persuade Lynch to make a statement. As these other figures arrive, the police swoop in and lots of people get arrested, including this senior Sinn Féin official. Many of these people then are prosecuted in relation to Lynch's abduction and go to jail. They believe it's entrapment. Scapatici Mm. is kind of the only person who escapes prosecution. And that's the really suspicious thing, isn't it? That if you're the IRA and you think there has been this trap and the one person who was there who doesn't get arrested is Scapatici. Yeah. You think, well, that must be the person who's been tipping off the Brits. It becomes highly suspicious, yeah. Now, one of the things that really bewilders me, I think, about this story is how does Scapatici escape the kind of brutal kangaroo court paramilitary justice that he and his colleagues have Mm. meted out to other people? Because people would have been shot for much less, I imagine, yeah. or much less suspicious. Yeah, well, we know that some of the Nutting Squad's victims were murdered from much lesser suspicions. So how do you think he did escape? I think it's the biggest unanswered question. Does he know too much? Is it too embarrassing for the Republican leadership to admit that this man who they all trusted and relied on to do their dirty work... Is it too much to admit that he was a British spy all the time? That's the best explanation I can come up with. So so what does his position look like then as this suspicion grows? I mean, what what is he allowed to do? Where is he? There's an event in 1993 which really kind of starts to throw the cat among the pigeons for Scapatici and the whole steak knife story. The Cook Report which was an ITV current affairs show famously presented by quite a gung-ho journalist called Roger Cook. They were investigating the murder of another informant, a man called Frank Hegarty, who was shot in Derry some years before. In 1993, when the Cook Report is investigating this, Scapatici finds the journalists who have been doing the investigation and talks to them and they covertly record that conversation in the car park of a hotel near Belfast. You can still hear it. It's very poor quality audio, but he is talking about being a man who used to be at the heart of things but is no longer at the heart of things. If we want to be straight, I was at the heart of things for a long time, right? Right. I'm no longer at the heart of things, right? I haven't been for a few, two or three years, right? This is the conversation with the reporter you heard at the start of the episode. He's very condemnatory of Martin McGuinness. He talks about McGuinness being a very cold man. He's a very cold person. He doesn't have friends within the IRA. He has what he calls comrades, but he doesn't have friends as such. He frowns on womanizing. 
phoned and drinking people and stuff like that. Right? Very moralistic person. You know, you kind of wonder, what is Scapatiti up to here? Why is he mm. doing this? Because he's putting himself at risk. One of the guys I spoke to recently who knew him back then said, I am so surprised he lasted as long as he did, you know, that he wasn't murdered. As you say, he's, he's somewhat playing with fire mm. and he survives through all of that. But then the existence of him, of Steak Knife, although not named, is then exposed in the Sunday Times. Yeah. And this is another member of the FRU, the unit in the British Army called the Force Research Unit, who apparently knew Hegarty, tells the Sunday Times that there was a very senior agent, British agent at the heart of the IRA, known as Steak Knife. This is in 1999. Then fast forward a couple of years to 2003 and the Irish newspapers report that Steak Knife was, is, Freddy Scapatici, the senior figure within the Nutting Squad. And there's, you know, a massive explosion of coverage. And the, the most strange thing about this is that Scapatici tries to brazen it out he goes to his lawyer's office, gives a, a short press statement. My statement basically is that I am Freddie Scapatici. I'm sitting here today with my solicitor. I'm telling you I'm not guilty of any of these allegations. Why do you think this label steak knife has been attached to you? I don't know. And, and just one final question. Were you at any stage a member of the IRA and involved in the Republican movement? Um... I was involved in the Republican movement 13 years ago. But I have no involvement this past 13 years. And what about the allegations? That's just finished. For a while, he really kind of toughs it out. And again, amazingly, there's no retribution in Republican circles. Mm -hmm. And then in, I think, August 2003, Scapatiti's gone. He's left Belfast. He never returns. Although he wasn't an MI5 agent, MI5 is responsible for protecting all intelligence services agents whose lives mm. are endangered. So he falls immediately under MI5 protection. And starts new life in Guildford, of all places. Do we know what kind of a life it was in witness protection there? It seems to have been a remarkably humdrum life. Gosh, in comparison, you'd hope so. Yeah. Grief. But <laughs> anyway, Scapatici, after his death, which happens last year, 2023, it emerges that he's been living in Guildford for much of the time he's been in witness protection. And his neighbours are stockbrokers, city workers, insurance managers. And he's living in a detached house behind a high hedge. He's driving a Mercedes. He's got a Cocker Spaniel, living a very quiet but very, very lonely life. Mm. And before he dies, Operation Canova it is launched, a report from which we're expecting later this week. How did that come about? Why was that launched? Why at that point in 2016 was it decided we need to look into all of this? Canova comes about as a kind of combination of victims' families and journalists, Belfast journalists, putting pressure on the police to investigate. You know, the troubles are gone. 
the situation has died down, but there are more than a thousand unsolved murders from the Troubles in Northern Ireland. And mm. that includes most of the murders by the IRA punishment squads. And people put more and more pressure on the authorities to say we need an investigation into this, and especially we need an investigation into whether an agent of the state was involved in either arranging or committing those murders, and therefore mm. whether that agents, handlers and intelligence services are complicit in those murders as well. Eventually, in 2016, a special unit is set up, Operation Canova. It's run by a man called John Boucher, crucially a former Scotland Yard anti-terrorism officer. And he is run by all accounts an incredibly dogged investigation which has recovered many, many documents that were thought to have been lost or possibly should have been destroyed years ago. You know, he's identified suspects. Crucially, I think, for the investigation, he has won the trust of the families of the victims. They have great faith in him, where a lot of other investigations into allegations of collusion and the dirty war in Northern Ireland have failed. Boucher has kept going and kept going and will produce this report. He hasn't shied away from confronting the Whitehall machine. He's been very, very persistent. And I believe that he has encountered a lot of resistance and obstacles. He was faced with requests to censor the report, requests from ministers to have the final say on whether elements of the report could be published. And he has resisted that. And mm. I'm pretty sure that the report, when it comes out, will have some pretty harsh words about the the difficulties he faced in obtaining information and publishing information. And incredibly, on that front, trying to get his hands on information, even when Freddy Scappatici died, he didn't learn about it until, was it, what was it, days after the fact? After he'd been buried in a secret location? Yeah. As you say, when Scappatici dies, he dies in April 2023. He has been buried, a funeral carried out, before Operation Kinova is told that he's dead, that the chief suspect in their investigation, this £40 million investigation, is dead, mm. and that that means there are very unlikely to be any prosecutions. Can that really be the case? If there must have been loads of people around him who yeah. surely might have been guilty of, of wrongdoing as well? So... Canova has sent at least 28 files to the public prosecutor in Northern Ireland requesting charging decisions. Any files on Scapatitia, as soon as he died, that's gone. They're not to be considered. Mm. You can't prosecute somebody who's dead. There mm. are various other suspects who are former members of the IRA, former intelligence officers. There are lawyers who advise the military on their handling of situations. So far... I think all of those files have come back, no prosecutions to be pursued. And to be fair to prosecutors, we might think there's a compelling story to tell here, but this compelling story may not stand up to the criminal standard of proof, may not be mm. rigorously examined in the criminal courts, because what you're talking about here is a lot of information that is on old intelligence records. It's not tape-recorded 
interviews with suspects yes. in the way that we had a, would have in a normal murder investigation. Intelligent records are generally inadmissible in the criminal courts because they can't be cross-examined. Hmm. Which leaves me wondering, what on earth is the point of all this then? I think the point, and Boucher is on record as saying this, is that there is a story to be told. A lot of the families don't actually want prosecutions. They just want to know what happened. And that's been a massive part of the whole, what we call the legacy situation in Northern Ireland. Not everybody wants mm. their day in court. A lot of people just want to know what was the story? What happened to my loved one? How did they meet their death? Who do you think was responsible? And for many people, that is enough. Not everybody wants to take this to court. We know that the IRA and, and other Republican and, and loyalist paramilitaries, of course, as well, were guilty of doing some pretty horrific things during the Troubles. This here, though, it seems like is evidence of the British state being complicit, yeah. arguably, in awful things. And I wonder how much how much of a surprise that should be when we do know that there have been other instances in which the British state has been has either done or been complicit in awful things during the Troubles. I don't think it's um, a surprise to anyone who, who's interested in the, in the Troubles that there was a dirty war. I think what may be surprising is that some of the most brutal murders committed by the IRA appear to have been carried out by an agent who was working for the British Army at the time. We asked the British government about this. The Ministry of Defence have previously said they're fully cooperating with Operation Canova, so it would be inappropriate to comment further. The Police Service of Northern Ireland said that the cases are due for review by the Legacy Investigation Branch, and in the meantime, they were not in a position to provide information on arrests, charges or convictions. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Luke Jones, and my guest, senior writer at The Times, Sean O'Neill. Sean will be speed-reading through the Operation Canova report on Friday to bring you all the news and insights within. You'll find his full coverage in the paper or online with a subscription. We looked at Operation Canova in January, and one of the murders covered by the investigation We'll put a link to that episode in the description notes. The producers today were Edward Drummond and Taryn Siegel. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by David Crackles. Stories of our times at thetimes.co.uk is our email if you want to get in touch. Comments, suggestions, compliments are all welcome. Goodbye. Goodbye.